from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Welcome back to Money Memories. I'm your host, Alona. Today, I'm talking to Wamimo Abe and Samir Goyle, the co-founders of Asusu, a fintech platform that leverages data to bridge the racial wealth gap. Today, more than 7 million Americans are unbanked, and more than 20 million are credit invisible, meaning they lack credit history with one of the three credit reporting agencies. Asusu helps individuals build credit by allowing them to report their rent payments to these agencies. We talk about how Abay and Samir's shared immigrant experiences had a profound effect on their understanding of wealth inequality and the challenges of building a product that most VCs don't have firsthand experience with. Let's jump in. Welcome, Samir and Abe, to Money Memories. Thank you so much for being on the show. Let's just get started and dive right in. So, Abe, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up? Thank you so much for having me. My name is Wemimo Abe, and I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. I lost my father at the age of two, and I was raised by my mother and two feisty sisters. One thing my mother invested intentionally in is education. She always believed education was the most important investment in any child's life, and it was the lifeline to a better life. To that end, she invested in my high school education, which was one of the best high schools in the land. And I had the opportunity to just engage with, you know, very, very wealthy kids, whereby their parents were in government. It made me think about my situation, whereby they didn't have two heads, you know, four eyes, were all the same. Despite the destitution of my own social position, I was really, really, you know, inspired and did the same things they did. That led to me doing the SATs in Nigeria and got into the University of Minnesota. Fast forward, I was leaving 80 degree weather to negative 22 degrees in, in Minnesota. I'm like, wow, why are people living in a freezer? But that experience was peculiar because one of the reasons why, you know, Samia and I started Susu was really the advent of our journey there. I had the opportunity to work for President Obama's re-election campaign. I did a whole bunch of exciting things in undergrad um, and graduate school. But the real impetus for starting Isusu was due to a personal experience. When my mother and I, you know, moved from Lagos to, to Minnesota, we didn't have a credit score. We walked into one of the biggest banks to borrow money. We had turned away and had to go borrow money at over 400% interest rates from a predatory lender. In addition to that, my mother pawned my father's ring, and that's how we started our journey in this country. Inspired by th- that experience, and you hear Samir shortly, we started a susu on three core premises, which is, number one, where you come from, the color of your skin, and above all, your financial identity should not determine where you end up and the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. Outside of negative temperatures, What was the biggest culture shock that you experienced coming to the United States? There are lots of things I found really interesting, you know, coming from Nigeria to to the United States. 
I came from a predominantly black majority country. You know, Nigeria is the most populous black nation in the world. And, you know, when I came to the United States, I was in the minority for the first time. So I really saw, you know, coming from a place where I was extremely poor, that was the destitution of my own social position. When the United States was just how different I was from everyone else. So that was something that was very interesting and took a lot of time um, to adjust to. But grateful for the village I had around me um, that kept, you know, praying for me, nurturing me and, you know, helping be who I am today. It's terrific. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your background. Samir, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up? I'll just kind of start with the inspiration for Susu and how that plays into my story, which is really comes down to my family's journey immigrating to the United States. I grew up in an immigrant family from New Delhi, India. And my folks, you know, had very humble beginnings. My grandfather used to, you know, get up at four every day, push my dad to get an education so that he could immigrate to the U.S. and have a better life for himself. And so my folks did have the opportunity to immigrate here, and that journey was just so much harder than it should have been. My father was mugged on his first day here. He didn't have a place for shelter. And a lot of my upbringing was watching my parents work miracles so that I could have some of the opportunities I've been afforded. You spoke about culture shock. I think there were some big ones for my father and my family were vegetarian. In, the, in that time, America didn't know what it meant to be vegetarian. My dad would walk into a McDonald's and be like, I want a cheeseburger. And they'd be like, what's this black thing? It's, it's like supposed to be cheese and the, the, you know, the sandwich, like what's going on here? Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, shocks that I watched my parents witness, both culturally, economically, and beyond. But what I have to say is that they were total miracle workers and they did everything they possibly could so that I didn't feel like I was left behind in any sort of way. Um, so I grew up in a very immigrant family, kind of constantly juxtaposing between India and New Delhi and what my family situation there was, and then the promise of America and what that meant uh, for my parents and for myself. In growing up in upstate New York as a you know immigrant and someone that's Indian and not white, it was a very interesting experience to say the least. You definitely don't feel like you fit in, and it took a lot of time for me to adjust. But following that, I moved to New York City for, for college. And New York was like the city I fell in love with. You know, there's no city that speaks to that like, to New York like me. And that's kind of where my journey began as a professional. Before we get into the story of Asusu, I have to ask the core premise of the show, which is what is your earliest or most impactful money memory? So Abe, I'll start with you before heading off to Samir. My first impactful money story was when I was in high school. My mother didn't have a lot. She sacrificed close to 60% of our salary to invest in this thing called education. It's one of the best schools in the land. And which means, and I was, I did boarding house and I was a day student. So I didn't really have a lot to go to school with. One thing that was insanely painful from a money standpoint was the first time I was kicked out of school for not having paid my school fees. Um, In Nigeria back in those days, if you don't pay your school fees, you're going to get flogged with a cane and then sent home. And the first time that happened to me was the first time I knew we didn't have a lot. And my mother was working in the postal office. So I got to school, they, they call a, a roster of people that didn't pay their school fees and you know, you're called out and then you're flogged and then you're sent home to make sure you're, it's not my fault, my mother couldn't pay my, my school fees, but that was incredibly painful. 
I asked, I went to my mother and talked about it at the post office because she was literally roughly 30 minutes away. So I took the public transportation. But it was just an eye-opening experience to just see, you know, I was excited as a kid to get the best education. I didn't need anyone to push me, but the system we operated in needed me to pay. And the, the disenfranchisement of not having access to it and even punishing me for it was quite revealing and quite frankly painful. And it was, it was the first time I truly felt shame because all my other classmates were could get a good education and I had to stay home for a couple of days before my mother figured it out. And then I'll add one you know, if I may. And sequel to that, you know, I started selling PlayStation CDs and Game Boy cartridges. My favorite one is Ruby and Sapphire. So for all those wealthy kids that were in school that, that had all the well we thought, started selling it to them at a 300%, you know, markup. So then I was contributing to my school fees. So the story wasn't quite dire. It turned out to be good with just a little bit of entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurial efforts which is continues to play a quintessential role in what we do and do today. And Samia has been a wonderful partner on that journey. Wow. I love how you were able to turn a hardship into an opportunity in such, a, in such an interesting way. Samir, what's your earliest or most impactful money memory? I don't know if this is like not 100% a money story, but a very impactful early memory around it. When I was in elementary school, you know, everyone kind of brings lunch from home. And all the kids at the elementary school would have things like Lunchables and Gogurt and like all this like super American stuff. And I would every day have like literally like rice and peas and it would be yellow with turmeric and it would smell because it was like Indian spices and it smelled good to me, but it was different than every other kid at school. And I always felt kind of awkward about that. And so, you know, I, I don't know, for some reason, one day I was just like came on to my parents and like, I want like Lunchables. I don't want to eat this thing. And like my parents shut that down so fast. It was like, you think we have money to spend on shit like Gogurt that's all processed and like went in on me. And I think that was like a very early strong lesson and just made me kind of, I think, realize like how hard my parents were working and like what they were trying to do, but also just like, it was just funny. Cause I can remember that. And I actually feel embarrassed now the other way that I thought that way. But that was just something that I still remember because I was like, as like a first grader, right? You're like, I just want to fit in. Where are my Lunchables? This is so important. And Lunchables are a total ripoff. It's like $7 for like two pieces of cheese and a piece of cracker, right? But it was just funny. But I think inspired by that, I always had like an entrepreneurial spirit. And so I just loved finding ways to make money. Like I still love retail business, anything where there's like a clear, like you do something, you bring in money. I can totally relate. I always wanted some Lunchables instead of my weird Russian food that I would bring in. But you're right. Now that we're adults, we're like, Lunchables are a scam. They're filled with horrible things for you. We definitely ended up winning in the great elementary and middle school lunch wars. No, you know what's crazy? All the Indian food is filled with turmeric, right? Everything is turmeric. And now you go to like Whole Foods and everyone's like, take your shot of turmeric. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like... Literally, like no matter what happened in my childhood, it was like eat turmeric and that will solve it. But now everyone in mainstream is doing it. So it's just funny. We were always ahead of the curve. So recapping, we have Abay, your story from Nigeria to Minnesota, Samir coming to upstate New York to New York City. How in the world did your two worlds merge to come together and join to start Asusu? Samir and I 
funny enough, we were in, we were at the same school at NYU, right? I was in graduate school. Samir was doing his thing at Stern, that which is the business school. I think this is back in 2013. And we were running two different businesses at that point. Samir was running a, a food tech sort of business, you know, sending foods to, you know, soup and taking foods from um, soup kitchens and, you know, sending it to shelters, which was very, very innovative. Just think about Uber for, you know, food delivery, which is fantastic for, for folks that are predominantly homeless, but now they're expanding to a lot of exciting stuff. I was doing stuff with clean water, providing access to water to, you know, folks in different countries. But when we connected, it was just like, wow, you know, we wanted to help each other out, you know, facilitate introductions, and then we just became friends. And then we became roommates at the same conference the next year, which is fantastic. And, you know, and just did a whole bunch of introductions to each other. And one day we're like, look, we met at Max Brenner's in New York, 14th Street. And we talked about what we were doing. We were doing well in corporate America. But we, we had one fundamental question to wrestle with. Would we ever ask ourselves, what if if we stick to the status quo, you know, what can we do that's bigger than ourselves rather than just making money? So after that conversation, we decided to start Isusu and the transition took a while because we were still poor, didn't have a lot of things and was just fairly new in our career in corporate America. So we made a commitment to save a whole bunch of our money, invest it in this idea. And in 2018, we quit our corporate jobs I remember when I quit my job, my mother said, I thought we made it, but, and here we are, you know, having raised four plus million dollars, have a team close to 40 people and having a tremendous impact in people's life and, you know, leveraging data to bridge the racial wealth gap, which is, there's no better thing to wake up to um, every day to do that and keeping a roof over people's heads. So we're immensely grateful. And Samia is like you know, one of the people I trust the most in my life and consider him my work husband. That's, that's so sweet. Do you guys have a work anniversary? December 11th, 2015. Nice. Can you tell us specifically what your goal and with Asusu is and where you'd like to take it in the future? At Asusu, our mission statement is to help keep working families in their homes. And our vision statement is to unleash the power of data to bridge the racial wealth gap. You know, we kind of stumbled upon this because we started out building a SUSU actually as a savings business, right? We had this hypothesis. There's 150 million people in America that have less than $400 in their bank account, right? How do we help those people save more? So we, we built a product around that while still in corporate America, took it to market, and very quickly learned two things. One, building trust with people is super hard, especially when it comes to financial um, tools. And so we moved to a B2B model. But more importantly, we just talked to people. And what they told us was, look, everyone knows that we need to save money, but what do we do if we make less than $40,000? And so that really inspired us to look at how can we use data to help give people credit and access to financial identity, which is like your green card in America, right? This three-digit number controls our lives. And the fundamental issue that we see with the credit system is that it operates as though you're guilty until you're proven innocent. Right? And we need to flip that switch on its head and make sure that folks are giving a fighting chance. I love it. And 
One thing I think is really interesting is that the way you attack that kind of the challenge of racial inequality slash building good credit is through housing. So can you talk a little bit more about why that specific industry was your angle into solving that problem? Absolutely. Real estate is quintessential. The average white family has 10 times as much wealth than the average black family. 76% of that wealth is housed in home ownership. And why do we have this chaos? And what got us here to have this big income inequality between white families and black families? It goes back to the early 30s when we had a policy specifically by the Federal Housing Authority that wasn't going to back the full faith of mortgages of black families and other minorities. And every other family got homes at a cheap rate when they came back from the war or they got the GI Bill, and then they could get a home through very, very cheap credit. So wealth begats wealth. You know, the property value appreciated, and that wealth continues to be passed down. In the 60s, you know, with the match with Martin Luther King having a dream and did a whole bunch of things, we finally had an opportunity to essentially break through that cycle. But 2008 was another setback whereby Black families also lost their wealth. Became this cycle of going, you know, 10,000 steps forward and a million backwards. So to that end, it's really because of the power of homeownership and the wealth it accumulates. That's why we focus on it. And picking up on Martin Luther King, although he had a dream, Simi and I have a plan to make sure we leverage data to bridge the racial wealth gap. For anyone who's interested in learning more about kind of the origins of housing inequality in the United States, it reminded me of, I'm sure you guys have read this book, The Color of Law uh, by Richard Rothstein. Highly recommend uh, to anyone who's interested in learning more about this topic. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about your perspectives as founders. How has Asusu been received among the investment community that you've pitched to? To be honest, raising capital for Abby and I was incredibly painful, especially when we started out. It was not an easy journey. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about the lack of funding that goes to black and brown founders and how difficult it is to break into the old boys club. And, you know, it's like that's the experience that we had, right? It's different hearing it in the news and experiencing it firsthand where you'll see people, you know, some white dude in a hoodie raise millions of dollars for an idea that's pre-product and pre-revenue, right? That just doesn't happen for folks like Abby and I. And so, you know, the the process of that was just, it was a numbers game and it was just being able to have thick skin and go through rejection after rejection. We talked to over 300 investors in the Valley of which, you know, four or five took a bet on us. And, you know, what I'll say is kind of, you you find the right people. So while it was very painful, I'm really proud of the investors that we were able to bring on. They're the right people that have had our backs from day one and really just bet on our vision for the world. This dichotomy is totally false of impact or profit. We can do both. And that's who we are. And that's something that we've been very unapologetic about. To be a little bit more tactical, I think there is really two things that were challenging. One, there's obviously like, you know, people don't see founders who look like Abby and I trying to build the solutions we're trying to build. That's there. I think the other thing that I like to touch on is VCs invest in ideas and concepts that they have proximity to, right? And we here we are talking about a problem that impacts low to moderate income folks. And we get questions like, does 40 points on a credit score really matter? 
And like, that's, that's like life. That's like a mortgage or not a mortgage. That's like going to a payday loan, right? That's life or death. And so I think part of the issue was that the ecosystem that VC operates in, all of their friends, all of their communities are lawyers, bankers, you know, folks that have access to wealth and privilege. And so part of it was just that they couldn't really empathize with the set of problems that we were trying to solve. And so that was something that we learned. And that's why it was really important for us to be intentional in the investors that we select, because that's also one of the reasons you see so many luxury products being funded, because people get it, because that's their lives. We had to figure out a way to break through that kind of barrier so that folks could see the impact of the work we were doing and why it would add value. So you all recently were able to raise a pretty substantial amount of funding, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, we, we recently raised an additional $2.3 million and now total combined funding of $4 million from great investors you know, in Silicon Valley. We were, however, we're very intentional in our last round where a, a, a predominant amount of folks that invested were minorities or women-owned funds. So that was, you know, that was really important for us to do. Yeah, well, that's terrific. Congratulations on all your success. I look forward to seeing the day that Azizu becomes a, a unicorn and saying that they were featured on Money Memories first. Before I let you go, I would like to know what is the one uh, piece of advice that you would give yourself if you could start over on your journey? The biggest advice would be to think big. I think one of the things, despite the you know the situations and background we came we came from, which is predominantly low to medium income, you know, close to poverty, there's a tendency to just you know think about you know the small things you can accomplish. But there's no great valor in thinking small. We have to think big to reimagine the impossible. If we really want to bridge leverage data to bridge the racial wealth gap, we need to think big. And if we want to build a business that outperforms from a revenue standpoint and have tremendous impacts on people's lives, we need to think big. So that's something, you know, if we're to do this over again, is not to think small, think big. I love it. Samir, what's, what's your going back in time piece of advice? Do something that you really believe in, that you love with people that you want to do it with. Because this thing has the ups and the downs, but what's really going to get you through is your utter conviction that this needs to exist in the world. And if there's one thing you can say about Abby and I, it's that we're convicted in what we're building. And that too, when things hit the fan, as they inevitably do, we have each other to kind of you know, bounce back together. And so that's really it. Build something that really matters to you that you will fight for to the very end and do it with people that you want to build it with. I love it. Well, Bay Samir, thank you so much for sharing your time and your money memories today. For people who are interested in learning more about Asusu or connecting with you all, where can they go? They can go to www.asusurent.com. That's the best place to reach us. And on LinkedIn, they are Wemimo Abe and then Samir's dad is named Samir Goya. It's been a pleasure. Back at you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for tuning in. And this is your host, Alona. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to hear more episodes, check us out at www.moneymemoriespodcast.com. See you next Wednesday. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic.